Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Thanks for joining us once again. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Ryan Russo, the director of the Oakland, California Department of Transportation. This month, we're going to be talking about innovative intersections and streets, a subject Ryan is going to be speaking about on the virtual ITE Technical Conference in March as the keynoter. Ryan, welcome to ITE Talks Transportation. Thanks for having me, Bernie. Really excited to be here. Let's get right into this by talking a bit about Oakland DOT. Now, some of the folks who are listening to this might not be familiar with the agency. It's relatively new. It was formed in 2016. And one of the first things that the agency did was create a strategic plan. Where do things stand as of now with implementing that plan? And what are the challenges and opportunities to executing the initiatives identified in the plan? Yeah, so it's really exciting to lead a department that was able to kind of write its own DNA. And OakDOT, as we like to call it, was created by the city of Oakland under the leadership of Mayor Libby Shaft in a reorganization of functions. Like many medium-sized cities, Oakland has 420,000 plus residents. The management of the public right-of-way, our streets and sidewalks, you know, 800 miles here in Oakland, had been managed under the Public Works Department, which also has responsibility for maintaining city parks and city buildings like libraries and firehouses. And so by creating a DOT, we could have this focus on Oakland's values, Oakland's goals, and the management of that space in a way that pursued those goals and those values. So the strategic plan was sort of the launching document. It's really built off four key pillars, equity, safety, sustainability, and trust. And so while there were four goal areas, 37 goals, and 98 strategies, and 218 one-year benchmarks, it's really those four pillars that have guided us. And I think that the strategic plan itself has been an important sort of flag in the ground on our value statement that, one, has helped us build the department, attract people who share those values, who want to serve a community with those values front and center, So it's been important in that regard. And second, it's actually important from an accountability perspective with our community to sort of say, this is what we're trying to do in in partnership with you and how we plan to do it and sort of to help us keep our eye on the ball. That said, the day-to-day of city government, city DOT, the issues that come up, the changes in budgets and situations mean that we're not coming to work every day and going through the list and just Implementing a strategic plan, building a department is not just going down a checklist of a to-do list. Once you write that plan, you get lots of um, complexities. But we have a number of initiatives and accomplishments in those four sort of strategic pillars that we're quite proud of that I'm sure we'll be, we'll be talking about that reflect progress. And from my perspective, hopefully prove to Oaklanders that going through the time and expense of forming a new department, doing a reorganization, which is not easy, uh, has been worth it. Before you moved west to Oakland, you worked for the New York City Department of Transportation. What did you learn from your experience in New York that was transferable to the work that you're now doing in Oakland? And what were some of the differences between your work in New York and what you're now doing in Oakland? 
Yeah, I love that question. So I'm a city planner by background and actually studied city planning out here closer to Oakland at uh, UC Berkeley, which Berkeley is right next to Oakland in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think what we get trained as planners, what we should be trained is to really understand context and work within context. And so being fortunate to work in two very different contexts, you know, New York City, 8.5 million people would be the 12th largest state on its own, you know, 6,000 miles of streets, incredible diversity of land use context, community context. I was super fortunate to spend nearly 14 years under three different DOT commissioners, two different mayors, implementing projects at a Department of Transportation. You know, there's been a number of things that have been, I think, across both places. One is sort of working with communities um, and community engagement. I think a, a government agency has to find the edge, the right line between exhibiting leadership and vision and in collaboration with our communities. And I think there's tremendous community wisdom that we need to tap as we develop our projects and exhibit our leadership and get things in the ground. And I think that has been, that's something that was kind of learned over time in New York City, and I think applied in a lot of the, and and built upon here in Oakland. In Oakland, we're quite proud of some of our planning efforts that pay community-based organizations in priority neighborhoods to help us sort of build our plans and our projects in partnership. Another thing is the use of data to really drive policy in your actions. I think in the engineering community, it might be an obvious thing to say, use data, but in local government, sometimes you lose sight of the using data to make decisions. There's a lot of kind of squeaky wheel gets the grease, a lot of um, sort of political calculations that go to where resources go. And I think there's a, an important partnership between, you know, we'll talk about one of the top line values at Dot is equity, but equity and data really need to go together. And using data to sort of say, we're not just going to build a project where there's opportunity or where there's political will for a project. We're going to do it where we have these inequities in our data. Which communities are impacted by severe injuries and traffic fatalities from collisions? I was fortunate enough to be a part of the building of the Vision Zero uh, initiative in New York City, which was a very data-driven initiative and I think had an influence in a lot of other cities. And I think in Oakland, we've, again, built on that to use data to sort of drive towards our goals around addressing the inequities that we have in our communities. In last month's episode, we talked about big data and some of the challenges with that, the fact that there is so much data. You talked about using data in Oakland. Do you find that it's difficult to determine how to digest all this data and to have it make sense for what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think you really need to keep kind of the end user and the end result in mind when you approach Data. I do think we've been a bit overwhelmed by all the sources of data, and we do get caught up in normalizing rates and, you know, making adjustments and, and those sorts of things. But I, I really see data as a storytelling tool and as sort of policymaking tool. Oakland created a second department at a similar time as creating the Department of Transportation. We have California's first Department of Race and Equity. And one of their initiatives was to create an Oakland Equity Indicators Report looking at the outcomes at the end of the day, using data around the outcomes. What are people's outcomes in health, education, safety, uh, the criminal justice system, and looking at it geographically and across demographics for those inequities and measuring it, making it in a way that's digestible to the public, boiling it down to simple indicators. And so, for example, 
we have a pedestrian safety indicator in Oakland for equity, where 100 would mean there's no disparity between pedestrian safety outcomes in our community, that you couldn't kind of predict the outcome based on someone's location or their demographic backgrounds. All of these indicators were ranked on a one to 100 scale and pedestrian safety, unfortunately, in Oakland got a one as like on the extreme of inequitable because we have like many cities in our downtown or Chinatown community. In our past, our profession, traffic engineering, engineered those downtown streets as one-way arteries to connect regional traffic to the freeway system. And that's where we have a lot of pedestrians and a lot of seniors, and they're getting struck by cars, creating this inequity in the data, for example. So it's always important to sort of build to that story and to that sort of policy and that direction you want to take things when you approach data. It was a year ago, March, that COVID-19, the lockdown, really first hit and started to change almost everything about how we live here in the U.S. One of the things that affected was the slow streets movement. Oakland's been cited as a benchmark example in the slow streets movement during COVID. You were finding creative and strategic ways to reuse streets. But you also encountered some challenges in addressing the needs of communities of color. How have things evolved since one year ago? Oakland, you know, one of those four pillars is equity. And what we had been doing in building OakDOP was recognize that to do equity, you also have to build trust. And you have to build trust with communities that government has not served well for generations. Underinvestment, eminent domain, freeway building, redlining, you know, leading to systemic inequities, systemic racism, inequitable outcomes. And so while I might not have individually done that, government has done that. And so it takes a lot of work to sort of build that trust. And we had been working in partnership with communities on our bike plan and other planning initiatives and project initiatives. And we certainly felt with the pandemic, there was an, a need to move quickly to keep people safe during COVID-19 to provide, to reduce the spread and to give people space so that they wouldn't overly congregate in our public spaces like our equivalent of Central Park, Lake Merritt in our, in our downtown. And so we did move with speed and decisiveness, but I think we certainly made some mistakes in that building of those relationships and, and, and building that trust. Uh, we did not take make the effort to do that communication that was really necessary, And but it was a tremendous opportunity for us to not be defensive, to listen and to stay engaged and stay in the conversation and really hear what the neighborhoods who, as we're all learning, and for many of us is not so surprising, are most impacted by this pandemic and this economic recession. It's communities of color, BIPOC communities, Black people who are getting more like having their life expectancy decreased as a whole, more likely to get sick, more likely to have negative health outcomes, more likely to have to go to an essential workplace more likely to have be struggling to make the rent or pay the mortgage during this time. So government really needs to go where the need is most acute. And the message we heard was, this isn't the, mo the thing we need most at this time. What I'm proud of is not just that we got the headlines about announcing the Slow Streets program quickly, is that we pivoted. And what we heard was that folks in those communities were still traveling to essential places. They had to get their groceries or go to their workplaces. And that the Slow Streets program was not addressing the larger arterial roadways in our transportation system where a lot of those folks had to get off the bus and cross the street and where our crash history said, this is where there's risk and where in COVID traffic volumes were down. So speeds were up. So the risk was up. 
So we quickly created sort of a second leg or branch of Slow Streets called Essential Places. And what that did was took kind of the Slow Street toolbox of cones and barricades and did, you know, truly pop up traffic calming, traffic engineering to make those crossings, those moments at those essential places safer. And that really grew out of those conversations with the community, recognizing, listening to what the needs were at this time. Ryan, another one of the interesting initiatives OakDot has been involved with is your racial equity team. Tell me a bit about that, if you would, please. Why was the group formed? What are its goals? And how has the team been received by the community? Yeah, so like I mentioned, at the time of the creation of OakDot, the city council also took the initiative to create California's first Department of Race and Equity, and its director, Darlene Flynn, did this work in Seattle. And the methodology, if you will, of uh, the Department of Race and Equity is to help seed these teams and departments throughout the city. You know, it's really taking a professional approach to this work, having it be data-driven, having to be results-based. And so the Department of Race and Equity in many ways sort of trains our internal team to lead from within, as opposed to what often happens with a lot of these initiatives is you hire a consultant, a specialty consultant, they come in for eight weeks of training, and then you kind of move on and you hope you've created that momentum. So our RET, as we call it, is internal and across different groups in our department, It has the goal of keeping the department accountable to some of the promises it makes around doing work around equity and really doing the internal work around building an equitable department. There's equity that maybe more people might be familiar with or or natural for an engineer, which is like, you know, using data around your paving resources or prioritizing a certain neighborhood for projects. But then there's how we do our work, how we do our community engagement how we do our hiring, how we do our staff retention. And so our racial equity team is really focused on looking at our systems and being almost like an internal creation of practices and policies that then get spread throughout the department. So, you know, the last part of your question is how it's sort of received by the community. In general, it's an internal group that sort of more and more over time is sort of in partnership with with me and the leadership team of OakDot to sort of steer the department and sort of build the department. As I mentioned, we're a year into the pandemic as far as its impact on the U.S. What do you see as some of the lasting transportation impacts in Oakland, and how will that experience influence going forward in Oakland? I think, you know, if I could sort of step back and think not just about Oakland, but about cities across the country, I think we've got a bad news, good news situation here. And we'll start with the bad, which is just the threat that the COVID-19 pandemic presents to public transit and that therefore to equity. You know, our, our lowest income households are likely to be the most dependent on our public transit systems. And our public transit systems in the United States were already relatively hard to build your your mobility around and, you know, access to jobs, the time it took you to get places on public transit in, in the Bay Area, you know, often four or five times than taking an automobile. And so having in many ways that the will to invest in public transit was all as a result of kind of peak hour congestion because of its role that it played to provide regional mobility during peak hour congestion. And to the extent we keep a high rate of sort of professional workers telecommuting, I'm very concerned about the will to continue to invest in the public transit that our communities need and that for sustainability we need. So that's 
a potential lasting impact that we all have to keep front of mind as we sort of rebuild and come out of the pandemic. On the more positive side, I do think, you know, for many of us in this public space, street management world, we've been sort of trying for pedestrian-oriented commercial districts, retail businesses, downtowns, bids, trying to get them to understand that like one parking space in front of their business may be turning over four times a day with a two-hour limit is not the best way to promote access to your business and might not be the most vital thing for you as a thriving business. But, you know, cities around the country, including Oakland with the pandemic, you know, converted many of those spaces to parklets. There's a lot, you know, street closures for commercial and social and activity. It's been a lifeline for our small businesses and in many of our cities, including Oakland. And I think that creates a lot of momentum for, I think, continuing to serve our communities and our small businesses, the the things that make each city in each commercial district unique that we love about cities, I think there's great opportunities to build off that with our policies as we come out. And then sort of related, you know, one of the seals that sort of slow streets broke was really sort of moving away from like a pure separation of like people who aren't in a motor vehicle always have to be on a sidewalk or scurrying across an intersection. Slow streets did not fully close streets. It just prevented through traffic and said the recycling truck, the delivery truck, and the local access in motor vehicles still continues, but we'll invite children in scooters and people going for a walk and people, you know, cycling to work to be in that same space. And it's worked out quite well. And I think building on that experience is sort of an opportunity as well. We've been talking on this episode of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast with Ryan Russo, the director of the Oakland, California Department of Transportation, as well as the keynote speaker at the virtual ITE Technical Conference this month of March. Ryan, thanks so much for being our guest. Great. Thanks for having me, Bernie.